Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. My name is Jason Shoup, and I am the Executive Director of today's sponsor, the Association of Data and Cyber Governance. The association offers a discount on memberships for our podcast listeners when they go to www.adcg.org and use the code word POD. Today, we are led by our host, Jody Westby. We hope you enjoy the episode and don't forget to leave us a rating or a comment. This is Jody Westby, and this week we're honored to have Leslie Lamb with us. Leslie is currently Director of Global Risk Management for Flex Incorporated. It's out in Silicon Valley. She's the former head of global risk and resiliency management at Cisco Systems, where she was responsible for managing all the enterprise level risks that Cisco faced and developing global risk transfer and business resilience strategies. Leslie was known as one of the most senior risk managers in the industry. Prior to her role at Cisco, Leslie held various jobs within the insurance industry, including client manager at Marsh and underwriting manager at AIG. I particularly wanted to share that with you listeners because she has been involved on both the carrier side, the broking side, and then the client side of risk management. In these positions, her emphasis and passion was always to work directly with the clients from many industries to help them identify, mitigate, and manage risk. Leslie, welcome. I'm so pleased you could join us today. Your background is so unique, and it will be interesting for our audience, because in this conversation, we will discuss not only how risk managers help their organizations manage privacy and cybersecurity risks, but also how they can work with chief information security officers, chief privacy officers, and business unit personnel. So let's start at the top. At Cisco, you regularly met with Cisco's executive team and briefed the board on risk strategies. Board cyber governance is a big buzzword today, and it means different things to different people. But please tell us generally how risk managers work with boards and C-suites. How do you get their attention? What works, et cetera? Thank you, Jody. It's such a pleasure to be on your podcast. I really appreciate the opportunity uh, and the time to speak with you this morning. These are such important topics in today's world. I'd like to kick it off with the importance of collaboration across the company, as well as with insurance companies. The role of the risk manager is to understand the risks, including the privacy and cybersecurity risks, as you mentioned previously. The reason it's important for risk managers to understand the risks is to help the business with mitigation efforts, as well as obtaining the best possible risk transfer solutions that are available in the market. I have found working with the CISO and their team is so helpful to my understanding the cyber risks, but also collaborating when something does happen. For example, regarding policy language, as the risk manager, I would not know what's important to build into the policy unless I worked closely with the CISO and his team. Ensuring the policies address the most important risks is critical. And when something does happen, the risk manager has a seat at the table to help strategize, like using the insurance carrier's preferred vendors, such as Breach Coach or the legal team or their forensic experts, and ensuring, and ensuring that the insurance companies are acting appropriately. 
You asked about meeting with the C-suite and executives. I have found this so important because we tend to bring yet another perspective to the table and also have insights into our valuable assets, which include our insurance policies that we purchase. Believe it or not, the insurance brokers and carriers have a lot of information because they are seeing what's happening on a daily basis with all of their clients in many different industries and in many different parts of the world. We can bring this information to the executives of the company as well as to the C-suite. Finally, I'll just mention briefly how important I think it is to collaborate, not only internally, but also with the broker and with insurance carriers. One of the exercises I've used in the past is to create a list of scenarios. This could be cyber scenarios, and it's similar to a tabletop exercise. We meet not only with the internal team to discuss how we would manage through each one of those scenarios, but also meet with the broker and the insurance carrier, the primary insurance carrier, especially. None of us want to be surprised if and when something happens. So this is one way to mitigate that. I have found these exercises to be very valuable because the insurance carriers learn more about our business and we learn more about how the policy would would or would not respond. We've actually learned a great deal throughout these exercises. So let me interrupt you and ask you, so when you do these exercises, who's there? Do you have board members there? Do you have the broker there? Who who all is around the table when you talk about these? Typically, we have the broker and the insurance primary insurance carrier there for sure. And we will also invite other members of a business unit. So if, if it's having to do with cyber, in this case, we would invite the CISO and or their team to the table. Notes would be taken and we would share those notes internally so that we understand how the policy would respond, how we might have treated it differently or who we might have collaborated with differently. It's an amazing learning experience. Actually, insurance carriers have told me that they've learned something out of it um, that they didn't realize. And especially in building the language, that language that's in the policy is so critical. I think that's probably, for me, that's one of the most important things that we can focus in on. Well, it occurs to me that, and I don't want to jump ahead here, but it occurs to me that as you go through these scenarios and the brokers at the table and the carriers at the table, and if they say, yes, this would be covered under the policy, it seems like that's a a really wise step in making sure if you have that particular type of claim that you don't have the carrier suddenly saying, denied. Right. That is why we want to do these because we don't want those surprises <laughs> to happen. If they can't always, it's not always going to happen the way those scenarios may play exactly. out, but at least you have a good idea of what right. you can expect. Right. That's really smart. I had, I had not uh, thought about that before. I mean, when often when people have tabletop exercises for cyber, they will have you know, they'll say, well, you've got to have your insurance broker because we have to notify them of the incident. But the carrier uh, has an, yeah, the carrier has a different perspective though, many times, mm -hmm. and they know the policy language so well. So they bring a different viewpoint to it. Right. And Mm -hmm. doing this, involving them all the way through a tabletop or this, as you say, this scenario then it unfolds in front of them. And then if the policy is not going to cover that, they really have an obligation to say that wouldn't cover this type of attack. 
Right. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And so does the board get involved when you're doing this? You know, they could, but absolutely could. I think it can bubble up in many different ways to the board. So when we put these notes together and we share them with the CISO and or the team or with our management, they certainly get to that level at some point. Right. Because you're really at an operational level when you're doing these. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, very interesting. So let's um, look at the insurance. Since we're talking about the cyber insurance, let's let's look at that market because it's changing a lot right now. Can you give us a few highlights of the cyber insurance market and how it's affecting risk managers across the country? And what do you see as the benefits or the downsides of these changes? Well, as you know, the cyber market, as is the insurance market, is in an explosive growth right now, and it'll continue to be in the foreseeable future. The market is definitely hardening. You mean explosive growth in writing of policies or in cost of premium? A little bit of both. Hmm. Uh, People buying policies and the cost of the premiums are going up. Okay. According to Fortune in 2021, the cyber market was writing about $8 billion in premium. This number is expected to grow to about $37 billion by 2028. That's at a CAGR of 25.3% from between 2021 and 2028. Wow. Because of what's happening, it has driven companies who did not purchase cyber insurance in the past to do so now. Yeah. And as you know, many countries are inflicting penalties and supervisory guidelines on companies for any data breach. Mm -hmm. The pandemic has exacerbated the risk landscape. I think you've spoken about this many times, that now we have more employees working from home, Mm -hmm. which has augmented the threat cyber attacks. And because employees are using their own devices and using unprotected networks, all of this increases the threat landscape. In 2020, there was a 93% surge in ransomware incidents, which were actually registered. And about six out of 10 companies experienced some form of cyber crime. This substantial increase in cyber attacks is projected to drive the cyber insurance market growth. And the premiums are increasing as it as uh, we speak. I'm in the market right now doing our renewals, and it is brutal. A big question a lot of us have is whether the current risk landscape is sustainable for insurance carriers due to the harsh financial consequences of these claims. And there's no let up in sight. Many insurers are adding third-party experts to their arsenal so they can better understand, underwrite, and price the risk. Many are also increasing their pricing or pulling back on coverage grants and reducing limits or increasing deductibles. We as risk managers will continue to monitor this to determine how we best cover these types of risks. It may not be through an insurance market because we can't afford it or because the insurance coverage that we really need isn't there. Mm-hmm. So many of us are going to start looking to our captives or other alternative risk transfers uh, structures if the market continues to harden. Well, the market is sort of getting what it deserves because it has operated from the beginning as a hedge. Companies would buy cyber policies instead of doing the internal things that they're chief information security officers or their IT teams telling them they need to do. It's cheaper to buy a policy than to do 
any of this stuff. And they'd say, well, then if we have an attack, then the insurance company will pay for it and they'll probably do the remediation that we you're talking about anyway. And that's exactly what would happen. Yeah. And, and so companies wouldn't do undertake the work they needed to to secure their networks because it was cheaper to buy a policy. And so what and then the problem from the insurance side and why I say they deserve what they're getting is because they have never undertaken underwriting in the way they should have for cyber policies. And what this led to was bleeding through a number of carriers through the the, uh, ransomware attacks because they hadn't carefully underwritten, you know, what they covered. And so I think that there is, there's going to be changes. Finally, their understanding underwriting is more important than grabbing market share. And I don't think it would be a bad idea if Congress passed a law banning insurance companies from paying ransomware payments. If they did that and the insurance companies couldn't pay ransomware payments, you can bet the companies are going to start spending the money they need to spend because they couldn't afford the ransomware payment. Oh, that's a really good point. You know, I think you're so right about underwriters and insurance carriers not understanding the risks and they weren't pricing it accordingly. I believe now they're finally getting their, starting to get their arms around it. And I think by doing so, hopefully they'll understand it better. Hopefully they'll price it better and we'll have a a more sustainable um, market for all of us, including the buyers. If their coverage is going to continue, if, if again, as you suggested, you know, if they pull back on some of the coverage areas, it may not be worth it for us to buy. So I guess it sort of depends. I mean, you look at both sides of this. If the coverage isn't there, we may not end up buying it. We may end up looking to other alternatives. Right. I think a lot of companies are going to have to because they simply can't afford the premiums. Let's get a little more specific about the role of the risk manager. We talked about them working with the board and the C-suite, but let's go back to the operational level. Before I started working with the insurance industry, I never interacted with a risk manager. Then I found out that they are people inside large organizations who manage the insurance for the company and develop the risk strategies. That's a very basic description that doesn't do the role justice, but let me ask you to fill that in and talk about the role of the risk manager in the organization, how they work with the business unit personnel, the CISOs, the privacy officers. I know you told me you did scenarios, but Can you share your thoughts on those things? It's my perception that CISOs, chief privacy officers, are not interacting with risk managers. I mean, I I would have known about that. And it just until, as I said, until I got involved with the insurance industry, I really didn't interact at all with risk managers. And so what's your experience with the role of risk managers and how they can really interact with CISOs and, and other chief privacy officers on these risks? Yeah, so I think, Jody, you're right in terms of in the past, I don't think it was traditional. I think it's becoming much more traditional. So as I talked about earlier, I think one of our main roles is to collaborate with the business. We cannot do our job without understanding what the risks are. So without interacting with the CISO and their team and other business units for that matter, We couldn't possibly understand what the risks are. 
So I believe that the role of a risk manager is to understand the business, to do risk assessments or or at least aid in getting them done, to communicate to the business and senior executives about the risks, and to work to mitigate the risks and possibly to set policies in place for the company. Not Mm -hmm. insurance policies, but policies as to what is appropriate and what's not appropriate. Mm -hmm. In order to do this, the risk manager has to build a deep and trusted relationship with some of the key people like the CISO or the CPOs. And without having these relationships, risk managers can't begin to understand the risks or help mitigate the risks or even make sure the insurance policy language will be effective at the time of a claim. As I said, insurance language is so important, especially at the time of a claim. I'll never forget that I was denied a claim because of seven words in a policy. Seven words. So I think by collaborating with key individuals within the company, the risk manager can also understand and or help establish the level of risk their, their company is willing to take. And this, of course, helps when getting into the going into the insurance market and getting the right level of limits for the company, as well as taking on the appropriate deductibles. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. You have a cyber policy and then a new threat comes out. And, you know, as we know, the threat environment changes all the time. So that's why companies have to stay on top of the management and the board need to understand the threat environment. But a new threat comes out. You have a cyber policy. What do you do in the middle of that term of that policy? You want to know that if the policy covers that new type of or new form of attack, can you go back, even though the policy is in effect at that time, can you go back and ask, does a policy cover this? And is there any room to change or to add on to that coverage during a policy term? Or do you have to wait till renewal? It's a really good question, and I think a lot of it depends. So I think you have to understand what the risk is first. So the the idea at the beginning of the policy period or before the policy period is to understand what the language is first primarily, and then to build that language as broadly as possible so that it will take encompass as many of the risks as you you possibly can, especially the ones that are critical to your company. But if a new one came out, I mean, I think it's worth discussion with the broker and possibly the insurance carrier to um, see how they're viewing it. And if it's of concern, you can always ask the question. I think it's going to be dependent upon the appetite of the insurance carrier Mm -hmm. and, you know, what you're going to be willing to pay. I typically would wait until renewal time to um, try to amend a policy because otherwise you're trying to catch up with the insurance policy rather than working it through to the renewal and then working it through in a, in a strategic way. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Can you talk a little about cyber assessments and how risk managers can use them? Absolutely. I think risk assessments are critical to an organization. I think quantifying the risk and being able to understand it helps you set what limits you want to purchase. And it also helps the company understand, you know, what they do have covered. So when they're looking at their critical risks, they know, you know, where their assets, their insurance policies potentially could play. I think risk assessments also help um, when discussing the key risks to the CISO or the C-suite. If the company doesn't do some type of a Uh, assessment 
for critical areas, they aren't going to be prepared when something does happen. As an example, we had a risk assessment done on a critical risk that we faced, and I worked closely with the business unit to get this done. We had it done under attorney-client privilege to protect the information uh, in the event that there were any negative results. And this helped us in at least six different ways, which I can tell you about. Interesting. Yeah, please do. We learned about the risk itself. We were better able to quantify the risk. We were better able to prioritize the risk as to where it stood within all the other risks that the company was having was facing. And we were able to understand the potential business interruption impact from that particular risk. And most importantly, it got cross-functional teams talking about the risks from different perspectives. This dialogue is critical and so helpful because we all come to the table with a completely different perspective. So I think risk assessments can give you more color on the type of risks that the company faces, how big they are, and they can help us prioritize capital expenditures, prioritize our budgets, and better able help to help us focus on critical risks. Well, you know that list of six you just went through. And talking about this, it occurs to me that's a great list for any CISO or chief privacy officer to look at and see why they need to go talk to the risk manager. Because what you really did with that list was you took what might be known as a technical risk or a compliance risk, if it's a chief Mm -hmm. privacy officer or something, and you expanded it out in those bullets as to what's the impact on the company. Mm -hmm. And the CISO or CPO generally don't know that. They know the system could stop. They know that it could, you know, cause exfiltration of data or corruption of data or it's going to get us in trouble with regulators. But they generally aren't so involved with looking at what's the impact on the business? What's the business interruption going to be? How do we talk about this cross-organizationally? Because this may impact more than just one business unit. Right. And I think that's always been a gap with those two roles of CISO and CPO. And you're explaining how those six points of just taking a cyber assessment can help take a risk and link it to the business operations and then bring that back into their perspective, helps them then understand better how to manage it. Right, exactly. And again, it gets us all talking about it. In the past, I think we were all working in silos or many business units were working in silos. And so we never really looked at it from different areas of expertise or different perspectives. And this dialogue is so critical within that. Well, you know, most people think of cyber insurance as covering breaches, but it has to cover a lot more than that. Oh, it definitely does. Denial of service or DDoS attacks, exfiltration of data, erasure of data, business interruption, reputational damage. So how does a risk manager know if their policy covers all they need? Can you rely on your broker getting you the right policy or do you have to do your own reviews of coverage? And if that's the case, isn't that hard to do? It's really hard to do, especially because we're typically not lawyers. Yeah. So let me just say that I think the broker is critical in helping to negotiate the right language and the policy to make sure that it addresses the 
companies' specific risks, but they're not the only people we should be relying on. As I said earlier, I think it's important to collaborate with insurance companies as well because you understand then what their levers are and how they view your risk, which I'm always interested in. I always want to know how do they view my risk? I also rely rely heavily on other risk managers in my community to know what they're doing. So we have a group that we ask each other questions all the time to understand what they're facing, how they're dealing with something. That always helps. But another key expert I've worked with is outside coverage counsel, especially one who represents the risk manager as opposed to one who works with insurance companies. Right. So outside coverage counsel, in my mind, may see a broader array of issues and risks. They also understand the legal landscape and are able to tie the specific policy language to specific areas of risk that you're facing. You know, the coverage council, and for our listeners, let me just say, these, these are people that love to read insurance policies. They and, love it. And they love to read insurance policies and they love to find the gotchas of what it doesn't cover. Right. And actually, you know, usually it's only very big companies that will engage them because they want to be sure that that their policy is covering what it says because brokers don't know all of those details. It's unfair to expect them to know all the policy language and the ins and outs. But I actually recommended to, it was a, a private club that was wanting to do some improvements on their cybersecurity. And I actually recommended that they hire a coverage council to review their policies it didn't cost them that much at all. Mm-hmm. And they loved it because the person looked at their their corporate general liability, looked at the cyber policy, looked at their, their property and casualty. And they felt like they had so much value from that just in the let me sleep at night knowing that I've, I've done the best I can in purchasing our coverage. And so it's something that that I know you've had experience with in having the benefit of their work. But I just wanted to relate that story because it's not something that only the great big companies can afford. That's right. I totally agree. And I think it's, I again, the language to me is very important. Yeah. I had an example I'd like to share. Yeah. Um, I was on the wrong side of an exclusion and the insurance carrier denied coverage, which um, was a surprise. Mm-hmm. And of course I fought it, but I didn't win in that particular case one others, but not that one. So when the dust settled, I decided to go to the insurance market and ask to have the language amended in four different areas. And I used outside coverage counsel to help me with what those areas were and how we would want that worded. I was told by my outside coverage counsel, by my broker and by a few others that I was not going to get the language I wanted. Hmm. So I went to New York and I sat face to face with the insurance carriers and I explained what I wanted, and I got it. Yeah, smart. That language and that that dialogue with them face-to-face, again, it's so important that they get to know the risk manager. They know who you are. They know why you're asking. That helps. It, it helps tremendously. And right. in this case, the um, outside coverage council was of huge help. Yeah, that that's a great example. I'm glad you shared that. There's a lot of talk today about DNO, director and officer risk with cyber incidents. You know, and after most significant cyber incidents, now we're seeing shareholder derivative lawsuits filed against 
board members and or the executive suite. And we're saying if they're public companies, securities class action suits for negligence and not protecting the assets or for making statements in their filings that were false or gave investors a sense of security they should not have had. So with DNO risk and cyber incidents, hardly anyone I know of in the privacy and cybersecurity worlds understand DNO coverage. What is this coverage and what does a risk manager have to consider in the cyber context? Well, it's an area of growing concern, Jody, and one of the major DNO litigation trends right now. Well, first of all, so what is directors and officers liability? It covers the assets of the D's and O's as well as the company for many allegations. And a lot of these have to do with security class action lawsuits or derivative lawsuits. And the growing concern right now in a trend is to have a DNO litigation trend over a security class action lawsuit arising out of cybersecurity incidents. Yeah. In most cases, these lawsuits haven't been very successful, but it hasn't stopped plaintiff's lawyers recently from continuing to file them. The latest one I think you probably know about and are aware of was the one filed in May involving Okta which involved a plaintiff's shareholder filing a securities suit against the company due to a decline in their share price after a data breach. Mm-hmm. What makes this one particularly interesting, I think, and worthy of watching is that, as you all probably know, Okta offers cybersecurity products and services. So this is a growing trend to go for plaintiffs to go after cybersecurity type companies. SolarWind was another example. They were hit not only with a security class action, but also a shareholder derivative suit. It was recently dismissed. However, I do think it's something that's worth watching out there. Yeah. Well, and, you know, even when they've been dismissed, even when, you know, they, or they've had a negative judgment, they appeal. And then they always settle because it's cheaper for the defendants to settle than to go through the appeal process and continue the litigation. So that's the, you know, there's no downside. Even if the plaintiff loses, they can appeal and then they end up with the settlement. Yeah. But the risk of this, I think, is one many, many of us in my field don't understand is that this type of litigation can eat up an entire limit on a DNO policy. Can you tell oh, us about that? Yes, yes, it easily can. Typically, we buy our policies and towers, and you know, DNO policy is one of the most important policies a company can purchase um, because there are so many things that could happen against the DNOs and against the company itself. That it's important to make sure that you have the right limits. And working again with the broker and insurance carriers, understanding what the claims out there and what the claims trends are um, to understand what those limits should be. Um, we, we watch that very carefully. And most savvy brokers will have tools to help you with that benchmarking and also to look at past claims and how big they've been in the past. Yeah. And one thing I'll just mention here, we're about out of time, but I wanted to mention that there are now increasingly compliance requirements for boards and C-suites to take specific actions with respect to cybersecurity. 
So for example, the Federal Financial Institutions Examination Council has a great set of best practices for the responsibilities of management, senior management, and the responsibilities of the board of directors. One has oversight, the board, and one has implementation and and management, which is the C-suite. And also then ISO has a standard now, 27,014, which is on governance of information security. So it's really important that DNOs get their cyber governance framework in place because they have specific responsibilities, not just to ask interesting questions and and make sure they have adequate DNO coverage. Um, Absolutely. We're about out of time, but I wanted to talk about planning for cyber risks because when you're at Cisco, you resiliency team and implemented global business continuity plans, including a specific pandemic plan to be utilized in the event of catastrophic business impacts. And you were one of the, Cisco was one of the only companies that had, or one of the few companies that had a pandemic plan. You talked about the tabletop exercises or the scenarios that you would develop. And hopefully, you know, when you're doing a real tabletop cyber exercise, you at least have a couple of the board members involved. But is that really a cyber plan with an interconnected global network and these conflicts springing up around the globe with businesses completely dependent upon IT systems and their electronic data and all these vendors they're using? How do you as a risk manager get your arms around developing a cyber resiliency plan? How's that for a simple last question? (laughs) Oh, it's easy. Uh, No, it's actually very complex. And it's an interesting question because as we developed our resiliency plans, we did so agnostically. So in other words, it didn't really matter what the risk was. It could have been a natural disaster. It could have been cyber. It could have been anything. What mattered was how the company would be impacted. Or, and, and what that impact was. Mm-hmm. So we focused in general on being resilient no matter what happened. Having said that, that we did pull out a few areas of focus. So pandemic was certainly one of them. Um, we didn't have any idea what was going to be hitting us, but we did have that, uh, we did pull that out uh, to focus on that separately. And we also did pull out cyber because as you said, it permeates everything you do and especially when it comes to communication. So we wanted to make sure that somehow we would be able to communicate if everything went down. So I think it's important to understand, you know, when you're building these plans, where are you located in the world? I mean, are you a global company? Are you, you know, just in a few um, countries? So understanding your global footprint, understanding what countries would be impacted the most and understanding what the political risks are in those countries. Because as we all know, we're going through it right now with Russia and the Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and many of us are impacted by that. So understanding what that impact could be if it all goes down. What are carriers saying about Ukraine? Well, um, interestingly enough, it depends on the type of coverage. So some of them are completely pulling out, completely on certain types of coverage. Now, I would say cyber is a little bit different. And I believe that there is hope out there that, you know, it's hard to prove that it was a nation state that caused malware, for example. 
but for property, they're completely pulling out. So you mean if you have a coverage on property that you have in Ukraine, for example, they can say, sorry, we're not going to cover Ukraine anymore. Right. They can. Wow. Now They have to give you a certain amount of notice. Uh Many times they'll go until renewal, but yes, they can pull out completely and they are doing so. Wow. Well, on that cheery note, um, (laughs) let me, (laughs) we all have a deeper appreciation for what you do and thank you. Thanks very much for being with us. I know that this will be really interesting for a lot of our listeners who really have not gotten a good glimpse inside the risk manager role. And I know that you have given us so many great examples of how risk managers can work with chief privacy officers, CISOs, other senior business unit leaders in a company or an organization. So thank you for sharing your expertise and We appreciate you being with us. Thank you very much for inviting me today, Jody. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us this week on the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast and want more content about the issues we've covered, you can visit www.adcg.org. The Association for Data and Cyber Governance is the leading association connecting all aspects of data management, cybersecurity, and governance. Our listeners can use the code POD at checkout for a discount on all memberships. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us next week.